You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 119, the September Campaign Part 11, The Southern Front. This week, I would like to thank Miles and Brendan, who chose to become members to support the podcast. I would also like to let everyone know that the structure of the History of the Second World War member program is changing. I've included a link in the show notes with far more details, but the one thing that most listeners will be concerned about is that for the foreseeable future, there will be no more monthly member episodes, and all current member episodes will be released onto the free feed, which is the one you're listening to right now, over roughly the next year. A full explanation of the reasons, again, can be found in the link in the show notes, but the core reason is that I simply don't have enough time to maintain weekly episodes, plus one a month for members, and so I'm going to prioritize the weekly episodes because they're the reason I started podcasting in the first place. I wanted to bring good history to as many people as possible, and and that happens through these weekly episodes. With all that admin talk out of the way, on to the show. Last episode covered the events that occurred in the German drive towards Wuj, where the German 10th Army took advantage of the area where two Polish armies met, Wuj and Poznan, to the west of the city of Wuj. This episode will shift focus a little bit south once again. The German 14th Army, under General List, would attack along a lengthy front starting just to the west of Katowice and then south along the German-Polish border before turning east all along the Polish-Slovakia border. The goal of the German attack in this sector was simple, destroy the Polish units facing them. If this was achieved, then the southern flank of the primary German advance made by the 10th Army to the north would be secure. Geography posed a few additional problems in this area of the front. Along the German-Polish border, the terrain was generally wooded and hilly, and there were less roads in this area, which made it slightly more challenging to kind of move troops forward. Then along the border between Slovakia and Poland, the German and Slovak troops would be attacking through actual mountains. Even with the slightly more challenging terrain, there were two primary areas of focus, concentrated around the 14th Army's two panzer divisions, the 5th and the 2nd. The 5th Panzer was positioned near the northern end of the advance, with the goal of pushing through to approach Krakow from the north while the 2nd Panzer would advance out of Slovakia to push towards Krakow from the south. This very lengthy area of the front was occupied by two Polish armies, Krakow and Carpathian. 
The key point of Army Krakow's defenses was the area known as the Obzar Voroni Slask, which translates into fortified region of Slovakia. I will be referring to this by the OWS acronym. The OWS was a series of fortifications that had been under construction for most of the 1930s to defend the areas around the Polish city of Katowice. By 1939, there were about 140 bunkers strung out over 22 kilometers of front, with positions joining the bunkers that allowed the troops of the 23rd and 55th Infantry Divisions to be placed in the defenses, with the 23rd being placed on the northern end and then the 55th on the southern end. The Germans knew that the OWS existed, and therefore planned around the strong Polish defenses. Troops of the 8th and 28th German Infantry Divisions, under General Ernst Busch's 8th Army Corps, would advance up to the point of resistance west of Katowice. The 8th Infantry, positioned in the north and primarily against the Polish 23rd Infantry Division, would then launch an attack against the 23rd's defenses. This attack was not designed to actually push through the Polish front, but instead simply to tie down troops, which it would not be completely successful at. The general lack of success in tying down Polish troops would become a problem for the German 28th Infantry, which would attack the Polish defenses further south. This attack was actually meant to make meaningful progress, but the lack of pressure in the north allowed the Polish general, Jagmin Sadowski, to transfer several infantry battalions south to assist the 55th Infantry Division against the German attacks. This is a really good example of multiple Polish formations working closely together in a way that greatly benefited both, and it was posh partially possible for two reasons. The first was that the two Polish divisions had been placed in the Slashk Operational Group uh, under the command of General Jagmin Sadowski, giving them a, a greater amount of coordination. The second reason was that they were in strong positions that the Germans did not want to dedicate enough troops to attacking the full length of. Unfortunately for the defenders of the OWS, and, and you're probably getting really tired of me saying this, their successes in the defense would be undone due to the events that would occur on other areas of the front. Directly south of the German 28th Infantry was the 5th Panzer Division. As with any other area of the Polish front, to determine where the Germans really wanted to succeed in their attacks, you just needed to follow the placement of the Panzer Divisions. The objective of the 5th Panzer was to move south of Katowice and towards Krakow, which would bring it up against the 6th Polish Infantry Division. The 6th Infantry occupied an important position at Stena, which served as the linking point between the Slashk Operational Group to the north, which we have just discussed, and the Belesko Operational Group, which the 6th Infantry was the northernmost formation of. There were some pretty good defenses near Shvena, and they were fronted by a few strong points in some of the Polish towns that it was hoped would kind of slow down the German advance a little bit to give the 6th Infantry time to prepare. These forward outposts were unable to meaningfully do this. They were unable to meaningfully alter the speed of the German advance. But when the German troops hit the primary defenses of the 6th Infantry, the situation was quite different. 13 German tanks would be knocked out near just one Polish village, and other German attacks along the front were also stopped by determined and strong Polish defenses. After starting their attacks in the late afternoon, by the time that night fell, the German attacks would be paused, after losing about 30 tanks and 12 armored cars in the first day. The attacks both against the Slask Operational Group and the 6th Infantry would continue on September 2nd, 
In the north, the Polish 55th Division would experience a severe pounding at the hands of German artillery, which would be met by a strong response from the Polish artillery as well. Late in the morning, the 55th and 23rd Polish divisions would even be able to launch some counterattacks that recaptured some ground that they had lost the day before. But to their south, the situation was rapidly deteriorating. It would start when the German troops of Panzer Regiment 15 were able to find a small gap in the lines of the 6th Infantry, using the morning fog to mask their movements, and then to mask their attack against the far right flank of the 6th Infantry. The first time that the commander of the 6th Infantry, General Lamond, heard about this attack was when the German formations were already capturing Polish divisional artillery batteries, and by which point it was pretty much too late to, to really respond. The only choice he had was to begin disengaging other units and retreating to the east, you know, to prevent uh, some kind of encirclement. When this order was given, he would be able to get a message to General Sadowski that would say, quote, Do not count on me to protect the southern flank. My division has ceased to exist, overrun by tanks. When this message arrived, it was clear that if the 23rd and 55th Infantry Division in the OWS remained in their positions, they would be surrounded, and so they had to begin their retreat, giving up one of the strongest Polish positions along the front, not due to the German pressure against those positions, but due to actions elsewhere. Over the night of September 2nd into the 3rd, all three Polish divisions would begin their retreat eastward, and by midday on September 4th, German troops had captured Katowice. To the south of the 6th Division was the 21st Mountain Infantry Division, which was assigned the unenviable task of defending the Teschen region. This area had been given to Poland by Czechoslovakia after the Munich Agreement had been signed, but it was in reality indefensible against the German attack. There were some units of the 21st that were deployed in the forward areas, but most of the division's troops were stationed further east, with those closest to the border ready to begin retreat as soon as the attack materialized. After some fighting early in the morning, and after the German advance had been at least momentarily paused, the commander of the 21st realized what was going to happen due to the German numerical superiority and what was happening elsewhere, and ordered his troops to retreat. During the last two episodes, we've been discussing German attacks that were being launched out of Germany, with the border running roughly north to south. However, starting with the positions of the German 7th Division, just to the south of the Polish 21st Division, the border curved to the east and changes from being German territory to the newly created Slovakia. This distinction is important, and not just because of the direction of the border, but also because before March 1939, this had been the shared Czechoslovakia-Poland border. The two nations were not on great terms during the interwar period. They, they always had disagreements. But the threat of war between the two was relatively low. And so Polish defenses in this area had been largely neglected throughout the 1930s to focus resources on a possible German attack. After the German takeover of March 1939, this situation completely changed, and the Polish defensive frontier against the German attack expanded greatly. In July, serious efforts began on some kind of defenses, with the goal of making it more difficult for any army to approach Krakow from the south. These defenses would be attacked by the German 7th Infantry Division, which would advance out of Slovakia. General Ott, the 7th Infantry's commander, knew about the Polish defenses due to aerial reconnaissance before the start of the attack, and, and due to their position some distance from the border, they would not be encountered until September 2nd. 
instead of launching direct attacks on the newly built bunkers and, and other Polish positions, Ott would execute some kind of a, a World War I-style infiltration attack, with the goal of moving around and behind any Polish defenders so that they could be attacked from the more vulnerable rear areas. Several of the largest Polish bunkers would be surrounded in this way, and over the course of September 2nd and September 3rd, they would either be forced to surrender, or they would wait until darkness to try and make their way back through German lines. Remarkably, the 7th Infantry would suffer just 57 casualties during these actions, proving that a bit of creativity and forethought you know, in the German actions could, could really deal with some of these Polish defenses that, that maybe were not fully built out or were not as strong as areas like the OWS. Further east along the Slovakia-Poland border, Polish defenses were even weaker than those to the west and the north. This included the 3,000 troops that would be on the receiving end of the attack of the 2nd Panzer Division. These troops were volunteer troops that had no support weapons, barely had rifles, and they were of course almost helpless against German mechanized troops. Some assistance was sent in the form of the 10th Motorized Cavalry Brigade, which contained a company of old Vickers tanks, which by 1939 were completely obsolete. But the unit had not yet received its newer replacement vehicles, so it was left with the Vickers. They would arrive near the Polish town of Wysoka during the evening of September 1st, which was only possible due to the German commander having decided to wait until morning before launching his next attack. On September 2nd, that attack would begin with a combination of German armor, infantry, and artillery that was kind of the hallmark of German attacks during this period. Polish anti-tank guns were able to hit several German tanks, which caused them to momentarily retreat, but just a few hours later, another attack would be made. This time, the Germans got close enough that machine guns equipped with armor-piercing munitions were able to knock out several Panzer I and II tanks. Throughout the day, German attacks would continue, until eventually just the continued pressure and sheer numbers would prove to be too much for the Polish defenders. But by that time, the Polish defenders had knocked out 30 German tanks, which was pretty good. You know, several would later be repaired, as many tanks were, but at least they, they took out a number of German vehicles. What would follow was a multiple sort of series of chases, where the Polish units would retreat overnight, establish a defensive line, which the Germans would then attack the next day. The attack would not be successful and would not push through the Polish defenses, but then they would have to retreat again the next night and the cycle would repeat itself. This resulted in a very effective delaying action for the Polish troops, but did nothing to prevent the Germans from continuing their advance on Krakow. This was the best that could be done, you know, along the southern front, as Polish units were forced to retreat to the north, they were heavily outnumbered and, and heavily outgunned. Germans would then approach the outskirts of Krakow on September 4th. Several Polish formations would be able to make it to the city, including the 21st Mountain Infantry Division, but they faced the problem of German troops attacking from a growing number of directions. On September 6th, the city would be abandoned to the Germans, adding another area to the list of positions that would have to be abandoned due to the risk of any Polish defenders being surrounded and destroyed. At the same time, further to the east in the Carpathian Mountains, what Polish troops were available were being overrun if, if only due to numbers, with both German and Slovakian units pushing through the mountain passes by the second day of the attack. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. For the Luftwaffe, the second day of the invasion was a better experience, especially in northern Poland, where during the first day the the fog and the weather had been such a problem. For the operations on the second day, there was a general refocusing of Luftwaffe efforts away from targeting the Polish Air Force, and instead more effort was put into directly influencing the fighting on the ground. This was at least partially due to the belief that most of the Polish Air Force had already been destroyed on the first day of the fighting, primarily while they were still on their bases. This was believed all the way up to the very top of the Luftwaffe's intelligence branch, and would also be picked up by Nazi propaganda in the days that followed. The focus on supporting the ground offensive would take the form of German bombers, targeting objectives like the rail lines behind the front, like when Stuka dive bombers would hit rail stations which were trying to help concentrate Polish defenders who were trying to create a roadblock to stop the advance of the German 10th Army. This air support was not given to all of the German attacks equally, and instead it was focused on just a few areas of the front, with other areas receiving almost no air support. The Polish defenders were not idle during this time, and there would be many attempts to intercept German bombing raids. But of course, not all of these were successful. The first problem was simply finding the German bomber formations. Remember, this is a time before radar, where raid warning and interception were much more challenging. And then there was, of course, also the problem of German fighters. However, when the Polish fighter aircraft were able to intercept unescorted German bombers, they did quite well, which was a pretty good example of how vulnerable um, unescorted bombers were to enemy fighters, even if those enemy fighters were heavily outnumbered. The air groups assigned to Army Pomorsha and Poznan were particularly active during September 2nd. This included some efforts to provide their own air support for the ground forces, with Polish fighters making strafing attacks on advancing German motorized infantry columns. This particular effort would not be very rewarding, partially because the Polish fighters did not carry any bombs, so they could really just attack the Germans with their machine guns. Polish bombers would have been far more useful, but the bulk of Polish bombing forces, uh, contained in independent bombing brigades, was held in reserve south of Warsaw. Overall, the Luftwaffe flew about 2,000 sorties on the second day of the war, losing about 14 aircraft, while the Poles were able to manage about 200 sorties at a much higher rate of attrition, losing 10% or just 20 aircraft. 
One other small area of note, the first bombing raid over German soil would be launched by a single Polish bomber, which would drop eight bombs on a factory near the German town of Alau, uh, modern-day Alava. September 3rd would be another day of bombing raids against Warsaw. Just before 9 a.m. in the morning, another bombing raid would hit the capital, with this raid made up of HE-111s and BF-110s as escorts. Polish fighters would be there to meet them, with numbers bolstered by the aircraft that had been repaired since they had been damaged during the actions of September 1st. In total, 120 Polish fighter sorties would meet the German attacks over Warsaw, but they would have a pretty difficult time getting through the fighter escorts, you know, especially when compared to earlier raids, which were not escorted by as many fighters. And the losses on both sides were roughly even, uh, about 15 to 13, with the Polish fighters coming out just a little bit ahead. At night on September 3rd, the first German night bombing raid would take place, partially as a test of the navigational aids that the Luftwaffe had been developing over the previous years. The main bombing groups were preceded by small groups of pathfinding aircraft equipped with special radio gear that was able to recognize the position of radio signals from German-held territory, which, when the positions were kind of cross-referenced, allowed for a very accurate night bombing set of raids, with the raids over Poland you know, dropping bombs within several hundred meters of their intended targets. This radio guidance system was critical because it was very difficult to navigate at night, especially when it came to finding targets in enemy territory. The same system would become much more famous when it was used during the German bombing campaigns against Britain in 1940. Polish bombers were also active on September 3rd, placing their primary focus on the German armored troops of the 1st and 4th Panzer Divisions north of Czeskachowa. These attacks would be costly, but the situation at the front was kind of getting to a point where all possible tools had to be used to try and halt the German advance, even if, if using them was very costly. This fact would become more true over the following days. On September 4th, a major raid would be launched by the Bomber Brigade against, once again, the advancing 1st and 4th Panzer Divisions, and this time the newest and most capable squadrons of the Polish Air Force were committed, including Poland's best bomber, the PZL-37B. On 50 sorties, 9 of these bombers would be lost. For the Polish Air Force, one of the major challenges by the third day of the war was one of numbers. Polish aircraft continued to launch sortie after sortie every day, but, but every day there would be fewer of them. And even if they were able to destroy some German aircraft, the Luftwaffe was much more capable of replacing its losses. This resulted in Polish aircraft increasing their sortie tempo, but still being outnumbered by 10 to 1 by the sorties that the Luftwaffe was launching. The math problem was made even worse when the Luftwaffe found some of the airfields used to base Polish fighters out of, which had mostly eluded them after September 1st. On one airfield, just, just one airfield near Łódź, five Polish fighters would be destroyed on the ground, not even able to defend themselves. On September 4th, 300 Polish sorties would be launched, but that rate was unsustainable as losses mounted. On September 5th, that number would be just 180, and then on September 6th, they kind of boosted it back up again to 240. Every day, there were more losses, though. There were 30 on the 4th, 15 on the 5th, 23 on the 6th. Polish squadrons were forced to begin moving to airfields further east as their previous homes were threatened by German advances on the ground. And this just made everything more challenging, you know, just adding to the exhaustion of both pilots and the mechanics and the support staff that were trying to keep the aircraft in the air at all costs. 
With losses mounting, on September 6th, the decision would be made to try and concentrate fighter resources to kind of help provide some assurance of being able to defend some piece of Polish territory instead of spreading dwindling fighter resources thinner and thinner to the point where they weren't making any discernible difference anywhere. In total, over the first six days of the campaign, the Polish Air Force would lose about 155 aircraft, about 40% of the number that they'd started the war with. The Luftwaffe would also lose about 126th aircraft, but this represented just 7% of their number from September 1st. Even if they were not destroyed on the ground on September 1st, the Polish Air Force was rapidly losing its ability to influence the actions of the Luftwaffe, a trend that would only accelerate in the days that followed. But by September 6th, there was another factor to consider in the air war, a very important factor. The British and French had entered the conflict, and they might prove to be a major distraction, pulling Luftwaffe resources away from Poland and into western Germany. French and British bombers could be over Germany at any moment, dropping bombs on German cities that would force, that would absolutely force the Luftwaffe to reallocate resources. All the British and French had to do was launch some bombing raids against Germany. That's why the Bomber Command and RAF existed, after all. Surely they would be doing that immediately after they entered the war, just a dramatic first strike against Germany. That's what they were going to do, right? Oh, oh no. No. 